0: Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host VGR Nathan, and uh, this is the first episode after the election. We're all kind of, you know, sighing, giving a sigh of relief uh, or a sigh of uh, of uh, completion. And uh, you know, I'm I'm here today with uh, a special guest, Sumita Chakraborty. Uh, She's a poet, essayist, and scholar. Um, uh, Helen uh, Zell, visiting professor in poetry at the University of Michigan. She's coming to us live from Ann Arbor, where she teaches in literary studies and creative writing. Her poetry has been most recently appeared in uh, the magazine Poetry, the uh, American Poetry Review, Best American Poetry 2019, Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Her scholarship appears or is forthcoming in cultural critique, interdisciplinary studies in literature and the environment, modernism, modernity, Uh, College literature and elsewhere. In 2017, she received a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. In 2018, her poem "And Death Demands a Labor" was shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem um, by the Forward Arts uh, Foundation. And 2020, she became a a Kundiman Fellow. Deferred 2021 due to COVID. Uh, Just find out. You can find out more. about her, po- we're going to find out more about her poetry collection, debut Poetry Collection Arrow*, which is now out from Alice James Books in the U.S. and um, Cara Net Press in the U.K. and has received coverage in uh, various venues such as the New York Times, NPR, and the Guardian. So, welcome, Samita. Uh, so, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about your teaching? Uh, you know, teaching and and teaching during COVID and some of the um, seminars you're teaching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me, Vijay. Um, It's been wild to teach during COVID, but I think one thing that has been an unexpected positive um, is that it has reminded me of the importance of empathy and care, which has always been really at the heart of my pedagogy, but this term I mean my explicit pedagogical teaching goal is that everyone makes it through as alive and as well as earthly possible so everything I'm doing is more explicitly geared toward that goal than um, I think had been at the forefront in in past semesters although I hope that I've always kind of foregrounded it one way or another <clears throat> one way or another um, in terms of what I'm teaching uh, this, Term, I'm teaching an undergraduate course um, on intermediate poetry writing, and the idea uh, behind that one is about world building which I think is a really common concept in teaching fiction, but less commonly foregrounded in teaching poetry. We're thinking there about the world of the poem as a whole, even beyond what actually comes through in in the poem itself to help the students conceptualize a more robust world um, in their poetry and a more complex background for their speakers and other persona in the poem. And then my graduate workshop uh, is themed on failure because I think that failure is uh, very very understandably terrifying word but actually has the potential to be um exhilarating a source of possibility and generation and that's what i wanted to really be dwelling with with my graduate students so that's been a really great time
0: thank you thank you so um yeah i'm interested in failure as being like a Whether it's and how do you understand failure in your own experience? How do you understand success? These kind of dichotomies between like, you know, we think we always have to be successful, successful, but actually failures in a way is a kind of success. And the terminology, the binary there is kind of um, misleading, you know, that that that, um, you know, I remember in high school they had most likely to succeed as being one of their uh, topical (laughs) or one of their possible awards. And I was nominated for that, but I was like, you know, I was thinking to myself, we're all going to succeed, I hope. You know, it's like not, <laughs> not like any more likely that I succeed than anyone else right, succeeds. Right. We're all heading towards success. And if there's a failure, then that's a success in and of itself. So tell, tell us a little bit about kind of how you define success in this regard. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a really... um, I'm kind of envious of your high school foresight. (laughs) Um, In high school, I was neither nominated for something like that, nor would I be qualified (laughs) to, nor would I have had any interest in the concept. I was pretty sure I and everyone else, if I had to put it in terms, would be destined for failure. So (laughs) um, your confidence and foresight um, are really admirable to me. (laughs) I think... That for me, um, you know, it's interesting, I was just talking to a friend about this. Um, As someone who is a survivor of domestic violence and has been through quite a few other gnarly scenarios, I think that for a very long time, um, early on, especially in college, once I finally got a a sense that I could possibly be good at something, thanks to the amazing professors who who were there, I think that for a long time, I kind of pushed myself through year by year, and even month by month, day by day, with the idea that I needed to be doing something useful or doing something well in order to justify my existence on earth. And after college, and especially partway through grad school, and thanks to bucketfuls of therapy, I started really instead valuing the, as I said before about my grad class, the generative possibilities of failure. So, um, one of my favorite examples of failure. When I talk to grad students and when I talk about poetry, it's actually the very first poem I ever published. I was at the time, that was shortly after college, and it was, I was still in that mode where I was trying very hard to be as productive and, and as successful as earthly possible. So I wanted to publish quickly. I knew a lot of people who were publishing young, and, and I wanted, or I knew of a lot of people who were publishing young, and I wanted to be one of them. So I rushed the thing to publication. I'm still grateful. It was accepted um, very, very much so, but I considered it kind of a pretty much unsuccessful poem even when it was published and only more so after that. I, spent, I have spent years after that point trying to get that poem right in one way or another, but it just, it won't work. There are like critical flaws at the heart of the thing. And I think at this point now, um, I have a really enjoyable relationship with that poem. I'm not trying to fix it. It will never be fixed. It will, I mean, as soon as I say this, I'll probably... I may, I'm afraid that I will end up (laughs) revising it in a way that does work, but I'm operating under the assumption that it'll never really be a poem that I'm happy with. So when I find myself itching to go back to it, I'm not finding myself trying to make something that works. I'm realizing that I am in need of a space in which I can think, in which I can try stuff out, a place that I can play, right? Without having those expectations of a good poem or a bad poem, weighing over my head and having a blank canvas or like um, a lump of clay that I can go back to and kind of poke at to figure out something new about my craft or a way in which I'm thinking about something else. And that relationship, since it's not predicated on kind of a linear attempt to acquire some kind of abstract perfection, that relationship with that poem is almost one of my most exciting creative relationships to my own work.
0: Yeah, so interesting, and I think it's interesting you bring up play because it's like, um, how do we define success in play? How do we define kind of whether or not it's working when you're being playful? Whether or not it's being, whether or not it's using that terminology you're using, uh, success or failure? Whether or not we think of um, whether we're going far enough? And I think it's connected a little bit to word building, world building, because it's like whether or not it's, it's consistent with your voice and the world you're building i like to explore a little bit how like the connection between play and world building what do you think is the connection between them or yeah yeah absolutely that's a cool question yeah
1: yeah for sure um i think well first when you were talking about success and failure that um put me in the mind of contemporary politics as well um you know so just a and this does actually link back to world building. So if you'll Mm. permit me a brief digression, you know, um, I think like a lot of people, um, I found myself voting in terms of the presidential election against a candidate more than I found myself voting for another candidate. You know what I mean? Um, And I think that one of the challenges of, political discourse especially in a two-party system is that you are very it's very tempting to say one is good and the other is bad and one of my my greatest and of course one is bad (laughs) that part's fine with me Uh but one of my greatest senses of relief now following the election is that i feel like there the field of possibility has opened so there's a bit less of a kind of mandate to say, you know, this party is good, this candidate is good, and more of what people derogatorily call infighting, but what I genuinely believe is the difference and the discrepancy required to make a better world, um, a little bit more permission to look at even that which we're relieved about, um, the election of Biden, and think about how you can actually... Enact more substantive transformation and look at the differences within the political left in a way that can push things even further in, in a better direction rather than only having to look at, like, this is the deathly option and this is the kind of okay option. We have the opportunity for more complex world building. And I think that also ties back into the way I think of the connection in, in poetry as well. You know, how to figure out whether something does or doesn't work in poetry. It's more, it's um, close reading, it's close listening, and it's a little bit of alchemy. You want to figure out whether or not the rules of the world of the poem are the things that the speakers and the other personae and creatures in the poem know about and live in, right? So if you play around with the parameters of the world in a way that's clearly intentional and clearly built right in to the syntax of the language of the poem, you have a great deal of freedom for your speakers to be able to inhabit those kinds of, however wildly fantastical they seem to be. And in the realm of the real, you have a great deal of leeway for your speakers to be able to inhabit them.
0: Would you say consistency or um, what are the attributes of a Successful world building, would you say consistency, things connecting, making patterns, you know, things uh, follow through? These are the, kind of the attributes of a successful world building, or is there something else?
1: I think, you know, all those things can be really useful, but there are also poets who do remarkable things out of kind of disjunction um, and disarray. You know, Susan Howe, for example, there's a lot of really rigorous consistency and rigorous rules, but but some of the most remarkable moments in her work are where something kind of erupts in a way that it, mm. it doesn't feel like it belongs. I really do think it comes down to careful consideration all the way to, through, gets turtles all the way down. Uh. And if you have carefully interrogated What every single bit in the world of your poem is doing. And if it has kind of a Chekhov's gun style payoff, right? Something you animate in one place isn't just animated for the sake of being animated, but it comes back around, or it has consequences and stakes. I think that goes a long way.
0: Yeah, it seems like what I'm hearing is that you're saying a mindful approach, or being aware, resting an awareness in your process, so that then there's not something that's like blindsiding you, or something that you're unaware of. Especially since poetry is so condensed, and um, you know there's, there's usually pithy statements or or kind of smaller statements. So you want to be aware of kind of what how you're using language, and, and you know you don't want things that to to be like. I mean, of course, in play. We have combustion, ambiguity, we have combustion. The reader may interpret things in different ways that were not the intention of the writer, all this kind of thing. But then also, um, just to pick up a little bit on what you were saying before about the political aspects, you know, um, talking a little bit about how, in my perception, uh, the political Republicans or conservative right or or the right uh, seems to be very unified in their perceptions whereas the left as we know is fragmented or tends to be perceived as fragmented and one thing i picked up on in your pre-interview questions was the um what's the word uh critical aspect to the collective we you know critical eye towards the collective we whether or not we can speak about you know our experiences the we speak about our society and i think that's really at the foundation of why the left is so fractured because the left doesn't perceive it as being our experience. They kind of are very aware of the fragmentation of collective we's, And I want to get a little bit into that now. Talk a little bit about if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you see the, the first person plural and, and, and the problems you have with it, yeah.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I would restate a little bit how you would put the problem on the left. I think that the mainstream left at this point hasn't embraced the potential of the number of discrepancies within the we. You know what I mean? I I wish that the Democratic Party, for example, was more conscious of that and was interested in harnessing it because I think you're really I think you're kind of dead on about the way the GOP does it. you know, rally around a single cause, rally behind a single leader, and I find it just incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Um, yeah, it was great. I felt bad. The question you asked was about um, what I think is a problematic um, or what I think is a truth that should be more acknowledged in our society. And I felt like it could be taken as flippant, but it was true. My answer is that there's no singular our society mm. Um and and that,
0: that does answer the question, in my perspective. So yeah, yeah. So that's good. Your questioning of the question was like an answer because you know, <laughs> that's something I undervalue, or perhaps I was showing it. I was showing that I undervalue, and I'm kind of, in a sense, representing what I think the general public undervalues in our society. You know, in society. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean
1: it's also impossible. I don't mean to say that we should live without using we or our. It's uh, kind of an it's an impossible challenge, but I think that you and you see this all the time in poetic rhetoric, there's a rigorous questioning of what the collective is. Who's the I? Who's the you? Who is the we that they together compose? I think that Instead of saying, you know, we shouldn't use those kinds of words, and I just said we myself, it's literally impossible to avoid. (laughs) I think one thing that would behoove us, again, there it is, to better do or to more consistently do is interrogate who we're talking about and why that particular collective has resonance for us in any given moment instead of assuming it as some kind of blanket universal.
0: Yeah, I think that also we have a... Discourse in this country where Democrats don't seem to be uh, You know seem to be left behind in the progressive movement You know see we seem to understand a critical aspect I seem to see a lot more critical Views on the Democratic Party as being very akin to the GOP you know and and very critical views that we have like We're kind of past that or you know many people I talk to are kind of like looking towards the power to the people rather than Investing our time and energy in party politics. So that's something that I'd like to delve into a little bit when we talk about the collective. We you know that we're not talking about Democrat versus Republican, especially since the Republican Party seems to have become fractured itself. The radicalization of the, Dem- of the Republican Party of the GOP into the Trump Republicans and the more traditional Republicans. Uh, hopefully there is st- there are still traditional Republicans. I-, I have faith that there are. But the the traditional conservatives versus the you know we have the fracturing from the tea party and then the trump republicans all this kind of thing so talking a little bit about the political spectrum and like um how you see uh where you situate where you feel you situate within that spectrum if you want to talk about that or if you want to talk generally about what you're seeing in the discourse uh politically about identification and this kind of thing sure Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will leave it to um, more gifted political analysts to try to figure out what's going on with the GOP. I think at least uh, as someone who can read patterns, I think that there's not so much of a difference. And I don't know that there has ever really been terribly much of a difference between the kinds of things that Trump emboldens and the planks of the Republican Party. I mean, you see racism, homophobia, genocidal tendencies and stuff going well, well, uh, going far back well beyond Trump. As for the left, um, again, my expertise is poetry, not politics, Uh, although I am very interested in political matters. I think In this most recent election, I've been emboldened, after this election, I've been emboldened to see increased attention to the arguments that um, AOC and other progressives on the left are making. I think it's indisputably true in the case, and we see it crystal clear in this election that young progressives of color, uh, young, queer, trans and non-binary progressives have, Been instrumental, absolutely instrumental, in bringing about the kinds of changes time and time again. Especially Black progressive folks that bring our nation's policies toward a more humane place time and time again. And I think that what I'm what I'm feeling emboldened by in this particular moment is you have groups of young Congresspeople, groups of young activists that are calling attention to that. And I'm hopeful and hopefully not naively optimistic that the mainstream flanks of the dnc will have to start listening to that at some point rather than continuing to cast those constituencies aside
0: yeah definitely definitely and i think like the uh major question for me in this show and for those of you those listeners who have been listening consistently um you know interrogating the idea of truth to power interrogating Mm -hmm. the idea of speaking truth to power that um, you know, we're kind of constantly bringing up the idea that you know we talk about the powerful and talk about the power as mm-hmm. being like people in positions of power, but those people are actually public servants who are serving the public, and we have to constantly remind them of that—that that their constituents are the people who they answer to. That we're not—we're uh, putting them. We're the ones who are putting them in that those kind of policy-making decisions, and those policies should reflect the the populace. But I'm interested specifically in um, the word embolden, which is kind of what I meant by empowerment or what my intention was about empowerment. I know <laughs> it was very interesting. I loved how you were um, in these pre-interview questions, uh, you were kind of questioning the question. And again, <laughs> this came up again with uh, being suspicious of the word empowerment and, and what is contextual understanding could be. So let's go into embolden and empowerment and, and what you mean those by those terms. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've, uh, again, I can't. I've never met a question that I don't like to question. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> again, wrong, I'm wrong. glad you found it fruitful yeah. rather yeah. than just irritating. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to how you started. Um, power isn't something someone just has, power is constructed in relations between people and between different bodies. That means it's also not unidirectional. Um, I think that for me, and I have heard from various quarters, not my entire life, in my childhood and adolescence, I was not told I should be empowered, quite the direct opposite. But at least starting when I went to college, um, empowerment became a a really large word in my general social atmosphere. um, And I came to be kind of suspicious of what it means. It means to take power within or to seize power. And I'm not interested really in a model wherein I feel better because I have taken power or feel that I have taken power, Mm. both because as I said, power is relational and I don't believe it can be seized in that way. And because especially over the last five or so years, it's become increasingly important to me to interrogate what aspects of my own sense of self-worth may be relics of A late capitalist society that I don't stand by in terms of my own values. I do like emboldened better
0: um,
1: because I think that, you know, to be bold um, and to be emboldened is to seize and bring an affect, a feeling within ourselves from which we can derive strength uh, and the ability to affect. Others and, and other things, and I, I feel so much better ethically and personally mm. about affect than I do about power.
0: Mm. And I think that it's interesting when you talk about taking power. Uh, I think it was in the context you were saying that. Um, now, I forget the context, I just wrote down taking taking power taking power. Um, so you know, a positive value or an added positive value to my life doesn't necessarily mean. Taking away power from another person I think it's in my view It's kind of like you know we're kind of Emboldened or we're kind of enriching Ourselves that and By enriching ourselves by kind Of you know taking action On behalf of perhaps Others who are uh, You know kind of Being uh, we perceive As being kind of Marginalized or pushed down Or this kind of thing on their behalf We kind of stand up for their rights we kind of take the the reign of power to say listen you can do this you know having faith in them having the uh, faith in the system that that, that they can be um, you know and when we talk about authority so connecting that to authority like who has the authority to do that who has the authority to uh, and in your interview questions you were saying you feel secure in your own authority so let's talk a little bit about authority and and how you know, like in my in my scenario, it's like, oh, I'm doing this on behalf of someone else. You know, I'm trying to help them so that they're not marginalized or they're not pushed down. But on whose authority, you know, kind of a thing, that kind of connection I'm making. Yeah. So if you can yeah. if you understand what I'm saying, yeah.
1: I do. Um. So I can't remember the context in which in the pre-interview questions I mentioned securing my own authority. Um, it was likely something about teaching or writing or something um, where... For me, it's been um, an interesting experience. First, you know, when you first start teaching, you're told that there are certain things that one can and should do to have authority in the classroom, for example. And for me, I found that quite literally none of those worked for me. Um, you know, you have, you hold your students at a distance, you have increased formality with them. I never felt particularly authoritative when doing any of those things because uh, I think that my sense of authority and um, however flawed it may be derives pretty firmly from feeling like I'm relating ethically to the people around me, including students. And for me, that doesn't mean keeping them at a distance. It means keeping them as proximal as uh, they need in order to feel supported. So I think that that's the context in which I usually think of the idea of feeling secure and um, in a sense of authority. Mm. As for speaking for the marginalized, you know, that's a complicated one. Um, and I do think it touches on some tricky aspects of, you know, what makes me pull back from the idea of empowerment. You know, there's no one who is voiceless. Um, mm. I think that people do have their own voices. It's not about whether or not they can speak, but whether or not anybody's listening. Mm. So for me, when it comes to that A relationship to the concept of marginalization, for me, it often becomes about, yes, being an advocate as much as I possibly can be, but also knowing when to shut up and get out of the way, right? Um, It is also a remarkably difficult thing to do to or it, it can be portrayed as a remarkably thing to, difficult thing to do. I don't think it's actually all that difficult on the base of it to realize that something is—it's not your place to say something, and your job is to, if anything, facilitate a greater audience for the people who are and have already been speaking.
0: Mm, thank you, thank you. This is the Truth to Power Show and Radio for Brooklyn. We're here with Sumita Chakraborty. Chuk- uh, we're talking a little bit about. Um, now we're going to move into kind of the. In one of the interview questions I asked you about uh, Philosophy Philosophical underpinnings of these um, Of these views And uh, you know We were talking a little bit about Michel Foucault and Audre Lorde I'm familiar a little bit more with Foucault's I'm not familiar But I I read a little bit of Foucault's Ideas about power Um, So why don't you bring us up to speed a little bit About how um, Foucault's ideas of power Just to get a little bit deeper into power and how Power, authority, and all these terminologies we use—kind um, of in commonplace discourse—are understood by philosophical the underpinnings of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, I could talk about this all day, and um, as people around me uh, uh. probably know, <laughs> uh, much to their chagrin, most likely. Um, I think that uh, in order to keep it brief, um, I'll touch. Quickly, both on Foucault and, and Lord, because uh, they really are both. They diverge substantially in how they think about this, but both are really critical to to what I'm thinking about and what I'm kind of living in right now. The statement I previously made, just as shorthand about power being relational and not a thing that can be taken or given, I stole that directly from Foucault. So that is a good way in there yeah. and a good summation there. Um, and as for Audrey Lord, you know, it's sister outsider which uh, is a collection of essays um, that really challenged me to think about all of the um, kind of other more reflective questions that I'm also asking as well. Where do I get my sense of power from, uh, personal power from? Where do I get my sense of authority from? Who? Do I want to say I speak for or with or to? All of those questions are things that Audre Lorde takes up in a variety of different ways and also redirecting the conversation from empowerment to different kinds of affects and feelings like for Lorde, anger and the erotic that can affect change in our world. I think those are, are really crucial things that that book taught me, so I'll keep yeah. it I could truly go on for ages, <laughs> but I'll put a pin
0: in that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, also, it has to do a little bit, in my view, just to be a little transparent about my views about empowerment. It's like, um, you know, I, I've I've gone to many ceremonies in the Buddhist tradition where they have mm-hmm. like empowerment ceremonies, and you have like the speaker who the the teacher or the teacher who's giving the empowerment, and the the traditional view is that the student who whose whose role I would inhabit is kind of viewing the teacher as a, a perfect being, a Buddha, if you will, or like mm. a pure being who's giving blessings of empowerment. So then the student is now um, so is socially acceptable or it's are enabled or emboldened to engage in the practices of whether the deity or the, the sadhana or the spiritual ritual, they're able to engage in that practice fully and commit to that practice. So when we talk a little bit about like how should one view uh what view should one take about empowerment you know my take is that we we can take the view that's most empowering you know the view that allows us to engage in our not be quiet but i mean being quiet is important i mean that is a role but you know like know when to speak and know when to be quiet and and thinking about um you know when we think about like the different traditions and how one should live is something's coming up for me you brought up uh um evering project of attempting to answer questions socrates initially posed how should one live so thinking about how should one view life or how should one view the process of life is how i would spin that you know what view should we take about life and about the process of life and um which is most beneficial you know kind of a thing i know there's a question in there yeah. but <laughs> no, there doesn't have to there. be. Yeah. 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 yeah thank you, you for that.
1: sharing yeah. your thank views you, yeah. and 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 what the word and the concept means to you. That's fascinating. I didn't know anything about that history, so I appreciate you sharing that very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So um, when we think about ethics, we can talk a little bit about ethics now. Um, so you know, when we think about uh, you know, ethics traditionally is defined as being like you know, kind of like there's a right and a the wrong. There's like a binary or something, or at least at least some spectrum of like the very wrong and very right, you know, right via correct or incorrect. And uh you know, we had we have lasted through four years of a administration who flaunted the idea of unethical behavior or nonethical behavior, uh, which many of his supporters seem to have turned a blind eye to. Um but thinking a little or bit, we're heartily embraced. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They kind of seen it as kicking it to the man, if you will. Or I think I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what their viewpoint was, but or is. But um, how can we live ethically? How can we? How can we live? Uh, <laughs> how, what What is the meaning of that? Yeah, I mean, Nietzsche would say we're beyond good and evil, or some people would say we're getting we're going past the these the shackles of morality but uh what way can we view that what do you think
1: yeah um so this also goes back uh, to foucault i think that the who was also really influenced by nietzsche yeah. so i think that the question is less uh, that we're beyond good and evil but more that there is that the project of ethics is more about what lives between outside and underneath those terms i think that what you're talking to Um, is a distinction between ethics and morality. And morality is a code, right? It's what one should or shouldn't do. Ethics is the project of living. Um, It's the reason that I, I mentioned and I'm really interested in that quote, how should one live or that question that originally comes out of Socrates is that it is quite literally impossible to answer. There is no singular response to that question on the grain of the micro to the grain of the macro that applies equally. And here we're back to the royal we, right? That mm-hmm. applies equally to every individual at any given moment in time. And I think the question is more again, about the project or the never-ending task of posing it and trying to answer it with every particular mode To tie a little bit um, back into the meditative things you were telling me about before we started recording, mm. actually, it's a little bit closer to a meditative practice yeah. than it is to a code of morals. And I think that that is what interests me in both philosophies of ethics and in poetry, because that is what you get in poetry, you get a rigorous questioning of how to make it from one word to the next, how to make it from one line to the next, stanza to the next, poem to the next, and what kind of journey and what kind of arc you want to convey in doing so. I was also talking to a friend about this recently, and I I know I mentioned this because I know you want me to read a poem or two, um, and it occurred to me that this is actually a tie-in to that. You know, um, there are mindsets and moods and states of being in my book that I don't entirely stand by, and that is because the book tells a story. It goes on a journey, and it's kind of – it's a quite autobiographical book in many ways, and as again, as survivor of domestic violence and other kinds of gnarly things, the book begins from a real place of anger and claiming and in some ways empowerment in all the ways that I, that I don't quite stand by it now. Um, the speaker at the beginning of the book has it that just started to really feel like she can take up space in the world and is doing so with a kind of defiant, furious, angry tone that I don't think is very capacious and I don't think is, uh, lives according to the values that I, that I feel now, but it is something I felt at one point in time. So my interest in writing the book wasn't about saying, no, I've always been virtuous and great um, or I don't stand by those feelings and therefore I won't put them in. It was more about looking at how I as a person and how I, I – The eyes in my poetry can get from that place toward a different, no less impassioned, but more capacious and joyful place by the end of the book. Um, So I can read. Do you want to hear angry or do you want to hear capacious and joyful or do you want to hear both? Let's start off with
0: the capacious (laughs) and joyful, perhaps. All right. Uh, I just wanted to remind listeners that this is um, coming from Arrow, which is a new book out now from Alice James' book. Uh, Books uh, in the U.S. and uh, Carconet Press in the U.K. Um, And it's written by Simita Chakraborty. So we're listening a little bit to a poem from there, Arrow. Please please tune in. Uh, Please listen in. Thank you.
1: So there are two title poems in this book. So there are two poems in it called Arrow. One of them is quite long um, and I'm just going to read a few sections from the middle of it that speak more to the more loving and joyful place. Perhaps not a hundred percent joyful, but definitely more loving. (laughs) Because nothing but looking seems like life to me. I am often overcome by the weather prone to singing praises and dirges and prone to allegories of paradise and of hell. In this, I believe you and I are the same. Let us hold each other to this apocalyptic earth. Some of my favorite words mean wildly contrary things. Such is true of shift, which means, among other things, beginning and last resort. Or marigolds, more diurnal children, which means both worries and those round-eyed red-golden flowers. Oh, my spirit, stay with me through this weather. It is true that you are dear to me and true also that my love has changed you and yours in me has grown roots which fasten me to this violently bucking earth. How then are we expected to bear our weight? We who are diurnal, we the subjects of and often the causes of the vagaries of the weather, we subjects. I understand why you might assume I believe in a divine, no earthly or heavenly house is unchanged by my imagination, and my mouth is always frozen in an O, which means both lack and plenty, which is astonishment made round as a pair of lips from which a tongue is missing my love is my utter final shift oh world you have me and i do love you and i do feel devotion toward you earth all the light-bearing spheres rhymes constellations flowers the dead all that dwell inside this terrifying home of a word this word that quickens the blood weathered
0: thank you thank you thank you so much and um yeah, I really appreciate it. It's uh, use of language, it's um, invocations, it's deep invocations to the psyche and to the uh, our kind of collective experience or your experience, and kind of I can, be, I can kind of resonate a lot with um, kind of how we we kind of imploring or seeking meaning. Um, I want to talk a little bit about language. There was something in here. Um, you're talking a little bit how like. Um, language and like um, how we understand mastery of language. Oh yeah, here it is. Um, when, you, when you're when you teaching uh, your principal discipline or with others, you say that language helps uh, make things happen. Um, that when we all did thoughtfully, carefully, and compassionately um, you know, linguistical acts that come for us uh, it was interesting how you phrased it. We, we should pay close attention to the various kinds of Language and linguistic acts that come from us and directed towards us So I'd be interested in exploring a little bit linguistic acts Maybe that was just a turn of phrase you just threw in there But I think it seems to resonate with um, kind of with the poet Like an of language or a thought action or a, la- a word action or physical action You know, the, my understanding, all these karmic You know, we talk about karma as being action and A lot of misunderstanding about karma But Anyway, so we think about like word action. You know, we would say something, we're doing something, we're thinking something. Um, they're coming from us and directed towards us. That was a really interesting way of putting it. So let's talk a little bit about like kind of words and language and the. You know, there was something I read. Um, politics is um, uh, war without bloodshed, and then war is politics <laughs> without bloodshed or, or with bloodshed. Is war is politics with bloodshed? So it's like it's interesting how. When we get political with words it's like it's without bloodshed, but it's like a war a battle contestation. And then war is politics with bloodshed. It's like that contestation, but it's been actualized into a physical world. So I don't know, mm. that was something I read somewhere. I forget who said it now, I have to look it up, but anyway. That's um, intriguing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I I'm mean, talking about language as being an action. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well I think Politics is also war with bloodshed, so I don't know about that distinction, yeah, but yeah, yeah, the agency it places on language is definitely interesting. Um, yeah, I, what you have uncovered is that I am a giant nerd. <laughs> so <laughs> basically that phrase, uh, The kernel of inspiration there comes from the theorist J.L. Austin, whose book, How to Do Things with Words, really effectively theorized the way that some language literally performs action in the world. So here are some examples. Um, When you're at a wedding... I now pronounce you man and wife. When someone is in a hospital and that person dies, a physician says time of death, such Mm. and such. Those phrases aren't just descriptive. They aren't just like describing a thing that just happened. They are phrases that make that thing real. They're phrases that make that happen. Mm. Um, Austin calls that performative speech something that performs a speech act, um, a thing that affects some kind of literal change in the world by saying it. Not all speech works like this. you know. For example, if I say I'm sitting at a desk, I haven't made myself sit at a desk. I'm already doing that, whether or not I describe <laughs> it. But performative speech does. And I think that at the heart of poetry, it, one key difference in poetic and literary rhetoric from just everyday descriptive speech is that even when you're describing something in a poem, it's a performative act. It's a performative speech act. You are making it. Nobody knows that there is a mountain in a poem until you write, there is a mountain. You have invented that mountain for your reader. So I think that that's really one of the remarkable things about poetry is it consistently draws our attention to the way that words make stuff happen. Words can make things happen to you, and you can do things to others with words and poems are all about the poet doing that to you all the time
0: yeah it's so interesting uh you know i just want to underline or kind of emphasize to myself i think the difference of the or the evolution or the the connection we do descriptive language and performative language Mm -hmm. so like many people seem to think that as writers we're being reporters or we're describing the world as we see it but in fact we're being performative in our way or creating the world in a way maybe it starts a little bit as a description maybe we're starting a little bit maybe the starting point of the origin of that performative language is "Oh, i'm trying to describe what i'm seeing but i think definitely i agree uh that we become performative we become kind of um more than just we're creating we're cre- active creation in um in this performative language that we're creating a world where we're pushing it forward uh all this kind of thing and um yeah i definitely agree i think it's very interesting very interesting to meditate on and think about because it's like um you know we have to sit with it because what we're doing is we're kind of propelling or kind of continuing to per- perpetuate the l- the world that's been as it is now and that when we start to describe it what's inside we start to you know, kind of direct that world, the inner and outer world towards an end. And uh, whether or not we need to have that end defined or whether or not there's mid goals or whether or not we need to have a clear, like in Buddhism, we think of in terms of enlightenment or, you know, we think in all the other, you know, philosophies, we have different other end goals or or objectives. But I think, uh, you know, there's something to be said with uh, an uh, objective less, Some system that has no objective that's just like play or just interesting, you know, just allowing things to happen. But, you know, um, yeah, for sure. What do you think about that? What do you think about like having an objective or not having an objective?
1: Well, I think that one of my favorite ways to think about. Objectives in poetry, and and I am not a particularly spiritual person, so I don't have any particular insight there. Although I thank you for sharing yours. That's thank really you, thank it's really quite intriguing. Um, as far as poetry is concerned, I think that what interests me boils down to one of my favorite stanzas in uh, the work of W. H. Auden. Um, It's often quoted that in his elegy for Yeats, he writes, for poetry makes nothing happen. But if you read the rest of the stanza, there's a whole lot more to it than that. I believe as the stanza winds on, he discusses that uh, poetry makes nothing happen. Poetry is about the raw towns where executives would never want to tamper, poetry survives and is a way of happening a mouth. So I'm sort of paraphrasing in the interest of time, but a lot of those were direct quotes. And one of the things that is pretty remarkable to me about that stanza is that although he says that poetry makes nothing happen, he also calls poetry a way of happening. I think that instead of one singular discrete objective, what poetry teaches us is that there are ways to think about making and happening as perpetual acts. And those perpetual acts all go back to things that don't quite fit into um, a late capitalist mode of success or progress or having attained some kind of goal, but about the raw towns of our feeling and about the mouths with with which we articulate those feelings. So yeah, there's an objective, um, but it's an objective that kind of messes with the idea of what an objective can look like. Look like. mm,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately you kind of phrase it in the in the interview questions about consciousness raising. Uh, yeah. You think it's like um, you're talking, we're talking a little bit about the question is about how the personal is political. What does that mean to you? And um, you think a little bit about what you kind of reflecting a little bit on uh, you were kind of reflecting a little bit on um, how, um, you know, kind of we can go beyond our understanding uh, so tell us a little bit about, kind of, you cited the Kumbahi River Collective Kumbahi thing, River Bahi Collective, River, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and how that kind of influenced your understanding of the personal is political.
1: Yeah, so I think that when I was first introduced to the phrase, the personal is political, it was through a uh, second wave white feminism. And what I understood it to mean at that time was... Uh, The also admittedly true statement that our uh, domestic lives or the individual details of our domestic lives are not immune from political understanding or political um imp- infringement I think that what I gained immensely and I'm ever grateful to black feminism including the Kambahi River Collective statement for is widening my understanding of what the phrase the personal is political means and and in their statement they also uh, very rightfully take credit for having broadened the resonance of that statement from where it where it, what it meant in um in second wave white feminism to thinking about how there is no aspect of our personal lives that doesn't take on some kind of political significance that there is quite literally if you are a human body then you are raced you are gendered you are sexed you are abled or disabled right like you if you live in a body there is nothing about that body that doesn't intersect in some way with the political body Um, And I think that that is something uh, that I first really started to think about through the Kambahi River Collective statement and through its subsequent theorizations in in Black feminism. Um, And I think that we could all stand to learn a good bit from that, um, of course, without appropriating the significance of those statements and those articulations for the specificity um, of the Black woman's experience to which those statements were initially speaking and continue to week.
0: yeah i mean i think that a lot of people seem to think that you were saying at the end that uh nothing personal is removed from the political a lot of people Mm -hmm. like especially during tumultuous times during these times when you know we want we don't want to become divisive we don't want to become you know we kind of want to avoid becoming divisive as a country you know like we want to try to heal we want to try to bridge from bridges um you know we try to think about um Oh, you know, transcending politics, you know, Obama supposedly some of the articles I was reading about Obama said that he was like trying to be above politics, that his intention was to be like, oh, I can get beyond that. I can really, you know, show that we're human beings and stuff like that. And then you have like above or below uh, politics, you know, and kind of a thing, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, we have to be aware, raise our awareness, our consciousness to the point where we're like all this is and there's no judgment. There's no kind of, you know, cringing, oh, you know, but I, I want to still maintain relations with people who may have opposing viewpoints. You know, there's no shame in kind of understanding that even that's a political kind of positioning you know
1: oh yeah it's very much a political positioning you know people who are comfortable saying something like i want to remain friends with an opposing viewpoint of course someone with an opposing viewpoint i think um it really depends on that what that opposing viewpoint is and i think that what we've seen in Of course, um, several people that I share politics with and I'm I'm close to or I'm friends with, we disagree about a whole lot of things, but there are other things that if I disagree with you on, we cannot be friends, like we cannot be loved ones, and that is because our way of looking at the world is just so radically different that we have no common ground pretending that those kinds of irreconcilable differences don't exist is no less political than anything else. It's just stating a position of, um, or it's just stating that your political position is the privilege of neutrality. Yeah. And that is no less political than anything else, even if it likes to pretend it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the objective or the thinking behind that is that we want not have influence over we want to extend our sphere of influence to people who are not are diametrically opposed to us that we don't want to let them go we don't want to give up on them we want to kind of have that influence a heart-heart influence over them Uh, perhaps yeah um, I'm okay with letting them go uh, (laughs) you know uh, to
1: be perfectly honest I don't really any It kind of goes back to empowerment right Um, or the idea of power I don't delude myself that I will have the power over anyone and I think Mm. that there are certainly people that I'm I'm more than comfortable letting go because I don't I'm not interested in begging people to take other people seriously as human beings. So if that's where you're at, then
0: goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I read a, I saw a meme about, you know, opinions are about whether or not chocolate ice cream is good or vanilla ice cream, not about whether or not human lives are sacred or valued. Right.
1: So, yeah, yeah that's not an opinion. Uh, <laughs> if you like discussion. mint chocolate chip, you know, yeah. I won't be sharing that particular flavor of ice cream, but that's yeah. fine. Exactly, if you exactly. like genocide, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, game. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it comes to a point where it's like, you know, um, there are certain lines that are drawn, demarcations, that which we understand the limits of our compassion, limits of our ability. I mean, we can solve compassion, but we have limits of our active, actionable compassion uh, in word, thought, and deed. You know, there's limits to how much we can just allow the person to, you know, suffer their own consequences of their own actions, you know?
1: Yeah, and rigorous compassion means more than, I mean, I, I think it deserves to be, to have more justice done to it than to solely be used in the name of, papering over massive, huge, irreconcilable conflicts for the sake of civility, right? Compassion isn't just civility or tolerance. Compassion is something else altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really what it comes down to when people recommend compassion for different kinds of um, political agents who may be operating in bad faith or with terrible ethics. I don't know that compassion is it's worth more than to be roped into being a a foot soldier for respectability politics you know what i mean
0: yeah yeah no totally totally and there's no one answer you know i think you were saying a little bit of thing that questioning the idea of the one or for everyone Mm -hmm. there's no one path for everyone everyone has to kind of navigate their own terrain and see how they can um how they can resonate with that 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 uh guidance but I just wanna say, uh, this is Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the Truth to Power Show. I'm BGR Nathan. Um, if you like, and we're talking to Samitha Chakraborty. Uh, if you like, if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. There's City Running Tours that is now offering neighborhood running tours designated with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhood. And these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose some tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedules, check out their website at cityrunningtours.com/new york city. And perhaps there's one for Ann Arbor, so maybe we can try to uh, look <laughs> up to see if Michigan's also. They're doing city running tours in Michigan. Um, so I encourage people to listen. So if some of your followers are in Michigan, definitely look them up and see if they're, uh, doing some running tours in Michigan. Um, so, th- uh, also Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, uh, to listen to diverse voices, such as on the Truth to Power show. Uh, if you still feel, if you feel so led, please donate to radio donate. Um, check out our Catalog of episodes at slash shoot to power. You can also check uh, some information about me at vjrnathan.com. And also, Samita, why don't you tell us where they can follow you and uh, where they can find out more information about your book?
1: Yeah, of course. So my website is myfullname.com, samidachakraborty.com. No spaces, no... Well, of course, there wouldn't be a space, but yeah. no dots, no dashes, none of that. Um, and then I am uh, on Twitter much too much for my own good. It's at Chakrabsumita, C-H-A-K-R-A-B-S-U-M-I-T-A. Please hang out with me there. Cool, cool.
0: Thanks so much. And then... Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We still have a few more minutes before we go off the air, but yeah. maybe we can just... Uh, do a couple of uh, um, kind of what what checking in about how your feelings are about, um, you know, uh, what's coming up for you. Yeah. What's coming up for you? What's, what kind of threads can we pick up on? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um- Today, I'm excited I get to uh, teach my grad class uh, this evening, so that's going to be really great. Um, For this week, in both classes, um, or in each class, I'm reading respectively uh, Lucia Lotempio's Hot with the Bad Things and Eduardo Corral's Guillotine. Both are incredible books, and I cannot wait to talk about them with my students. Uh, There's upcoming readings that I'm really jazzed about that are on the events page of my site, Um, but I think since I'm Mentioned, you mentioned you wanted one or two poems, right? I think I'm short one.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. okay, cool. So yeah, want me to one. close
1: this? I don't yeah, want to do them. an angry one for the last All thing. Right, cool. I'll do a I'll do a more chill one. Um, right. This is a final poem in the book. It's called "O." Oh. Stars are not the end, but the beginning. A bird is to its throat as a promise is to its sharp edge. I wanted to make for you a sun shower. Instead, I have made for you a mortal thing. Writing is knowing how to cut. There is a space in my body that did not exist when I began this book. It is a window. When I next speak, I will do so through that window. Please leave the window unlatched. When I next speak, it will be with changed lips. I wonder what their color will be. Finally, she enlarges the figure to a grand scale. Cuts off its head. Thank you so much, Vijay. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you. All right, I'll let the music, uh, True by Avicii, uh, Wake Me Up, uh, play us out. Thank you. Feeling my way through the darkness, guided by a beating heart.